I'm joined by not just one, but two movie critics. Our regulars, Sam Hollis and Graham Tuckett, both in the Wellington studio. Kia ora, guys. Kia ora. How are you doing, Jesse? Good, thank you. Hi, Graham. Hey, how are you? Ooh. Thank you for your services this year. Thanks to both of you. You do uh, a great job, and it's ready to uh, you're ready to compare best of lists of 2023. Absolutely, it's going to be so much fun. And thank you all for having us this year, and the listeners for listening, and the feedback I get on the streets. It's amazing. I love yeah, this gig. Very pleased. And um, taking a look at your lists, the first thing I've noticed is. There's not much in common, but we might get to that. Um, so we're going to each start at number five and count down to number one, your favourite film of the year. And Sam, why don't you go first? Yeah, I'll kick us off. So I started off with Rye Lane, which for me was probably the biggest surprise of the year, I would say, which is why I just had to include it on my list. I just watched this on a whim on Disney Plus and was just so uh, surprised and pleasant. Uh, it was just such a pleasant and delightful experience. You know, it's just a very simple rom-com story. It's all set over a single day in London about these two 20-somethings who um, connect and decide they're going to help each other get back at their exes um, and obviously, you know, form a bond between each other in the meantime. So it's not a groundbreaking love story by any means, but it's genuinely funny, really smart, romantic. The lead actors are great. They have awesome chemistry. Um, and it was just directed with such panache and style. Um, so it's one that I've just been recommending to everyone and actually apt now because I think this would be a great Christmas watch. So best rom-com I've seen in some time. So this just had to be on the list. Number Thanks, five, Sam. Yeah. Sam Hollis, Rye Lane, R-Y-E-L-A-N-E. How about you, Graham? I'm going to, probably in no particular order, but I'm going to talk about uh, Ayo, which is a Polish film. It's a, docu- a drama about a, do- a donkey. We talked about it, oh, must be about two months ago now. Uh, came out towards the end of 2022. It turned up in New Zealand at Aotearoa in our film festival in July and August, and then got limited big screen mainstream release towards the end of the year. Um, comes from a director called Jerzy Skolomowski, who's well into his 80s now. He's a, like a six and a half decade career. And he's made this beautiful sort of like almost a black comedy, almost a satire of Europe, as done through the eyes of a wandering and recalcitrant donkey that escapes from a circus and basically just goes walkabout, unexpectedly runs into Isabel Huppert. Um, it's <laughs> not a children's story by any stretch it does it does not end well um i got an outraged email from somebody who said that thing um traumatized me more than more than watership down and it took me 40 years to get over that so all i will say is like eo is a beautiful heart-rending film but as you walked into the cinema or as you find it on um on the streamer do pay attention to the fact there's an r13 contains animal cruelty sticker on it because it is there for a reason but at the same time absolutely beautiful provocative film about a donkey. Graham, what's this in no particular order situation? Isn't and you ranking these top five films in order? Oh, or just... just picking five is hard. Putting oh, one to okay. five is almost impossible. I'm giving okay. myself an out here. Okay, fair enough. Whereas I've been vicious with my selections. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam's, <laughs> Sam's listened to the brief. <laughs> oh, pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, it works, Graham. It works. Tell yep. me what's at your number four, Sam. Uh, so I won't spend too long on this one because I suspect Graham will be touching on this too, but past lives, another one that just had to be on there. Um, and I think we've probably had every single guest who came in for bookmarks, or at least every other guest this year, right, Jesse, mentioned this one. So I don't think we need to go on about it too much. But another genuinely just romantic, beautiful film, uh, a story all about the what-ifs of life and how to embrace those rather than uh, let them uh, sit with you and regret them. Um, and I just thought it approached that in such a beautiful way. What's the um, premise of the film, Sam? Uh, so the premise of the film, it's about two uh, young people who meet in Korea, two Koreans, um, and then they are great childhood friends uh, until um, one of them immigrates to America. Um, so they're separated, but they kind of keep in touch, and the movie follows various points in their lives where they, they cross paths again and sort of, yeah, um, are left to sort of simmer on these ideas of, oh, what if things had worked out? What no. if I hadn't moved away? What if what if we'd been able to connect for longer? Um, and it just did this in such a beautiful way and I think it's a, a story that so many people will relate to and that's why so many people have fallen for it this year. Yeah, including you Graham. Um, yeah, this is one of those points where Sam and I do cross the streams um, we both absolutely adore past lives I, I wrote it up for the paper a few weeks back and I said it's a film about is love something you pursue or is love something you discover and mm-hmm. stay with like is it something you chase after or is it something you find in the place that you're standing and very much sort of like, would your life have been different if you'd made, if things had happened differently when you were 12 years old or 24 years old? And at 36, year old, at 36 years old, can you change your life? Would you want to change your life? It's, um, it's just it's a very, very evocative film. It really does hit home. A lot of people are, caught, are comparing it to uh, Before Sunrise, mm. which I think was a, a great comparison. I did think about, yeah, maybe a little bit of Before Sunrise, but a sliding doors. Bit of sliding uh, doors, yeah. yeah. Not as contrived as sliding doors and <laughs> not as not as sort of obviously American as as um, yeah. as uh, before sunrise. It's just a it's a it's just a film that stays with you and resonates and will get you talking all the way home. Lovely film. Thank you. Well What's it, your number three, Sam? Uh, so I've been a bit cheeky with my number three. I've got Poor Things, which technically comes out on the 31st of December. So we'll, we'll just, I'll just, you know, we'll sneak it in there. Yeah, that's I just, fair. That's fair. Yeah, it's fair enough. And shout out to uh, Terrify, uh, the great film festival company who put on an early screening of this, um, which is why I've been able to see it. This is the latest from Yorgos Lanthimos, who is a Greek director who's broken out uh, with his last few films. He had The Lobster, uh, and then The Favourite was a big... Uh, Academy Award winner a few years ago. This is just without a doubt the strangest, most off-kilter and probably the most fun movie that I saw all year. It stars Emma Stone as a pregnant woman who dies early in the film but is brought back to life uh, sort of Frankenstein style by Willem Dafoe's character who's basically, he's playing a a mad scientist, the maddest of scientists. Uh, And the way he does this is by taking the brain of her unborn baby and putting it into Emma Stone's head. So leaving her a fully grown woman with the mind of an infant. Uh, So later on, uh, as she's developing, she starts to develop more and more rapidly, and she wants to go out and see the world and learn everything about it. So with that story, I guess I would basically describe this as the freakiest coming-of-age movie you've ever seen. Um, And the visual (laughs) style is just so weird and creative. It was just such a joy watching this, and the cast is pitch perfect. Mark Ruffalo had me absolutely crying laughing, and I can see Graham smiling 
Marlon right now because he's clearly just flashed back to a few moments as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just had to mention this. Um, so it comes out, yeah, in, in about a week's time. So Thank poor you. things, everybody. Clock it for your, for your summer break. I, there's nobody alive today except Emma Stone who could could have played that role the yeah. way she did. Like she's the she's this generation's like Julianne Moore. Mm. She's incredible. Eh? She's incredible. Yeah. I just yeah. I just last night actually watched one of her um, Saturday Night Live monologues hmm. just for the joy of watching Emma Stone being Emma Stone. Um, Okay, what's next for you, Graham? I'm going to go with um, my genuine number three. This is Misinformation, uh, the documentary ostensibly about Susie Wiles during COVID. Oh, yeah. But also just the fact that that film, almost not by accident, but it became a film, like a three-year overview of Aotearoa's whole journey through those three years of early 2020 up until the end of 2022. The... um, the way in which the country changed and fractured, the way in which social media sort of engendered a bunch of you know conspiracy theories and people who were very much kind of all on board for the team of five million back in March and April 2020 were in many ways quite polarized and factionalized within two or three years afterwards. Mm. And by following Susie Wiles and telling of her journey through those years, I think director Gwen Isaac um, has has by default she's made a very very insightful documentary about the whole country's journey over those three years and i think there will be other films along in years to come about what happened to the world and maybe what happened specifically in new zealand during those three years but uh, i think um director gwen isaac by following susie wiles through that time um has already got a head start on everybody and has made a film about a really important i'm going to say thousand days in new zealand's social history and it's uh, it's worth a rewatch as a as a historical overview of just what the hell happened to what, how did the team of five million become a yeah become two teams? It's um, um, it's a really really interesting overview. Well said. Um, talking to Sam Hollis and Graham Tuckett, they're two of our movie reviewers, and uh, comparing their top five favourite films of 2023. Next, Sam, another one I think you both agree on. Yes, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, which I know Graham's about to talk about as well, so we'll, <laughs> we'll just uh, go back and forth on this one. So I'm I'm a Martin Scorsese fanboy. I'm not ashamed to admit it. He was the filmmaker who really got me into movies uh, in a really big way. Um, and I just think he's been on such an incredible run these past um, 10 years from the Wolf of Wall Street to Silence after that to The Irishman and now to this. Um, so there was just no no movie that I was probably more excited about this year and it just didn't disappoint me at all. Um, for those who haven't seen it, the story concerns the Osage Nation in the 1920s who uh, discover that they are sitting on an oil gold mine and of course suddenly the white man comes rolling into town to take a piece of the pie but soon the Osage people start being picked off one by one uh, and an investigation begins. Um, so I thought this was just an incredible film. It perfectly balanced um, the this horrific true crime story with being a story about greed and tragedy uh, and in this case the destruction of a native culture um, the performances are amazing across the board I think it's the best that Robert De Niro's been uh, of his late career films um, Lily Gladstone is just absolutely magnetic please academy do the right thing and give her an oscar for this performance um it was just um yeah i I would say she was definitely my favorite performance of the year i didn't personally have an issue with the length uh i know some people will but it didn't bother me um and i think that yeah we should we should less conversation about the length and more conversation about just how incredible this film is sam had nowhere else to be (laughs) he was happy in the movie theater 
Yeah, as per. I'm, <laughs> um, I'm going to jump in on Killers of the Flower Moon as well. Like, I saw it in very ideal conditions. I saw it in a lovely screening with catered snacks turning up in the seat, <laughs> which was you know kind of ideal. But at the same time, I think some you know some stories just need to be three and a half hour films. Like War and the Peace, War and Peace needs to be a 900 page book, and it's like there are films that will justify that. You know that gargantuan running running time. If you're telling a true story and you're doing it with some depth and you're doing it with a, a vast core of characters, then um, three and a half hours—that's what you need. The other thing I'll add about that is it, it turns out that Killers of the Flower Moon is an epitaph for Robbie Robertson you know, of the band and a magnificent composer and ah. composer of soundtracks in his later life, mm. as well as being you know, Robbie Robertson. Um, it became, it, the film was released posthumously. Robbie Robertson died, I think, in August or September last year. But uh, And this was his last major piece of work, was the soundtrack that he compete, composed and completed for Martin Scorsese, who has been one of his great collaborators for the last few a decades. stunning score oh. for this film. I think it's, it's written for the cinema, and if you want to hear Robbie Robertson's last and one mm. of his very, very greatest pieces of work, go and see the film at a cinema because that's what Rob, where Robbie Robertson wanted you to hear it. I'm just on the um, on the page for the film, the Wikipedia page. Budget two hundred million, box office one hundred and fifty six million. Does that make it a flop? No, because I mean, it won't he? It hasn't even hit streaming yet. Yeah, uh, and yeah. it's still on big. It'll still be hitting big screens in many, many parts uh-huh. of the world. Okay. I reckon it'll break even. On on big screen release, and then it'll clean up as a streamer. Um, yeah, when and come come Academy Awards time as well, I would say it's going to be one of those films that sort of sticks around in the conversation for a little while. So you know, it's yeah. not going to be a opening weekend blockbuster in the mm. way that some films are. It will it will get a big bump when the Academy Award nominations are released because it'll be it'll be that and Oppenheimer. It'll, it's their film to lose, I think, between the two. The other one thing I want to say about it, I heard a couple of really good friends of mine who really really know a film upside down. They both said. Um, I wanted to see that story, but I didn't want to see like the the old white male version of that story. I didn't want to see it necessarily through De Niro and DiCaprio's eyes. And I, I was thinking about and ruminating and going, that's a fair point. And then I read a beautiful interview with Lily Gladstone, who's the lead Osage woman in the film, uh, interviewed, I think, in Vice magazine a few weeks ago. And she said Scorsese told me he was doing this film in the only way that he could. He The only film he felt qualified to make was the was the visiting white male version of the story, and that's the one he did, making sure that he got everything right that he could. But he's also made sure between him and, I think, um, DiCaprio and and uh, Robert De Niro are doing what they can to executive produce what will be a very, very penetrating series of documentaries okay. about um, this, telling the same story. We're almost out of time, guys. Yep. I loved um, Oppenheimer. Sam didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's have this debate. Yeah. What, so, what do you think of Oppenheimer, Graham? I thought it was magnificent that he told such a what could have been this massive epic story and managed to turn it into a small scale. Managed to find the human drama within it, like whatever the weaknesses of the film were. were and I thought not addressing the aftermath, both in Japan and also in New Mexico, was a major blind spot in the film. But the part of the film that he chose to make. I love the fact that he managed to make it interesting and human rather than simply just go for grandeur and epic. I thought quick, that was quick right of reply, Sam. Uh, the most vastly overrated film of the year. 
Um, I I thought this whole film felt like a three-hour trailer. Uh, it played like a montage to me, and it felt like it never had time to breathe. I I understand why he told the story in a in a non-linear way, but for me, it just felt like it never connected. It felt really messy, uh, and it really never felt like I got to know these characters. I, okay, I, I came out after three hours. I had no idea who this Robin, Robert Ot- Oppenheimer guy was. Let me say, guys, that if you agreed on everything, there'd be no point in having both of you. Um, Sam... 30 seconds on Monster. Yeah, yeah sure. Monster, my Go. number one film of the year. I saw this during the film festival. It's the latest from Japanese filmmaker Hirokazu Koreeda. Um, a beautiful story about a single mother whose teenage son suddenly starts to act erratically and strangely, and she has to get to the bottom of this, and the story slowly unfolds from there. I love the way that this film sort of made you make these assumptions about the characters and then made you sort of look in the mirror and face down those assumptions and those judgments you made and sort of take a look at yourself more than actually the character or the film itself um, so in that sense it just emotionally devastated me this film and it was um, the only film this year that when the credits rolled I just couldn't stand up from my seat uh, so nothing was topping this this year for me I okay. second all of that cool mm. <laughs> thank you both thank you thanks Jesse Gra- Graham Tuckett and Sam Hollis our two movie or two of our movie reviewers uh, arguing but mostly agreeing on the top five films of the year